Welcome to the Esoteric Footnotes. Welcome back, Goblins! I'm your host, Jason, and tonight I have author Justin McHenry of the book Lemuria, A True Story of a Fake Place. Welcome to the show, Justin. Hey, Jason, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on here and talking to you about the weird lost continent of Lemuria. Man, I gotta be honest, I did not know much about this until I read the book, and holy crap, is this just a roller coaster of really kind of the worst of humanity. <laughs> it goes all over the place, doesn't it? Yeah. And I, um, that's, it's funny you just brought that up, because like thinking about it and doing the research for it, people's motivations played a lot more into it than I than I thought they would be just be and I'm sitting there you know doing the research and all that and then I'm just seeing all of the the different people who um kind of utilize Lemuria and turn it into whatever they wanted to, to turn it into and it's it, it got really interesting real real quick so what even got you interested in this topic in the first place well you know I love history and I love all things weird and I love the history of all things weird and so Kind of like being in that sphere, I, I, I've been hearing bits and pieces of Lemuria here and there. And so, uh, you know, I was looking to write a book about something. And so knowing, you know, like the Blavatsky part of Lemuria and knowing about the Shaver mysteries and just just piecing together those those things. I'm like, well, let's see if there's been like a um, a true like historical you know, examination of Lemuria. And there hasn't really been one. Like that looked at it from the its inception all the way to it. It's it's what it is now, what it is today. And so I was like, well, that's a good opportunity. Let's let's go for it. And so that's what I did. How difficult was it to find those initial transcripts, the mentions of Lemuria by name? Um, it's not. You know what? It it was very much like a breadcrumb. And so you 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 find one piece, and luckily for. For me, Lemuria has a very, very specific start, like a very b- specific beginning. It all started with a, a British ornitho- ornithologist, Philip Lutley Schlater, who was reviewing mammals on Madagascar and just going th- down the list of all of that. So he was, you know, gave a lecture in 1864, I believe. And it was in that lecture, like the very end of it, he, he gets into lemurs and lemurs are the most like kind of famous inhabitants of Madagascar. Lemurs can only be found on Madagascar. And that's where he just kind of like at the very, very end of his his lecture, he goes, you know, there's lemur-like species in South Africa. There's lemur-like species in Africa. There's lemurs in Madagascar. And there's lemur-like species over in Asia or India. There has to be something connecting, at one point connecting all of these places, some sort of land bridge. And so he was like, let's just call it Lemuria. And that was his mic drop. And so ever (laughs) like in that, so it has a very, very distinct beginning. And from that, it was kind of easy to, to, to trace it along that because, you know, when you have a start date, that always makes it a little, little easier. Yeah. So it totally seems like he just kind of made this up off the top of his head. Yeah. Yeah. It very much so. So, um, at least the name for that, for that matter, it's just like a, um, uh, he was very good at naming lost continents, I, I guess. And, and the name just stuck. And because of that, I think because of the name was so um, 
just just a fun name to say and 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 do <laughs> and the idea of it too because very much um, land bridges were a 18th or 19th century phenomenon that um just because of how scientists in that in that time period thought um they thought about the you know, like the permanence of everything and so the it was the continents were all permanent but the 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 oceans would rise and fall and that's where you would get these land bridges popping up all over the place and there was no like kind of imagination on their part to kind of think outside the box otherwise to um, account for these kind of like species getting onto different places I and mean, there was very much a um at the at the like the crux of important 19th century scientific thinking he had a lot of a lot of people thinking about you know how did these animals get to these places fit alongside of the other kind of major 19th century scientific revolution which was evolution too so you, you had those two things going on side by side with one another and it kind of Kind of, um, and Lemuria played a, a big role in, in both parts somehow, <laughs> and which was the, the crazy thing that you you kind of figure the when you start researching a little bit, you you, you realize that you, it's, you hear Lemuria start popping up a lot more in, in those places. And to put this in context for everybody, the entire mythology around Lemuria basically is only about 175 ish years old. Everything that took place basically up until the 1900s happened simultaneously. And it was a handful of scientists really just kind of talking amongst themselves. Yep. Yep. And so, and so that's what like, it's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Because with um, the other kind of famous lost continent out there, Atlantis, you have thousands of years of, you know, people thinking about it and, and picking it up and turning it in and, and, you know, shaping and molding it, wherever. But with Lemuria, it does have that very kind of very short lifespan of only, you know, a century and a half or so. That, that doesn't mean like the, the, um, the mythology behind Lemuria doesn't stretch back, you know, thousands, if not millions upon millions of years. But, um, the idea of Lemuria only stretches back a, you know, a century and a half or 175 years or so. And it is sort of tangentially related to Atlantis, especially when you have characters like, I believe it was Ignatius Donnelly, who directly talked about Atlantis and only briefly mentioned Lemuria, but he had the distinction of moving Lemuria. It seems like this continent just sort of drifts farther eastward as time goes. But he's the one that really started bringing it towards North America. Yeah, and so like the and he was a fascinating character just just in general, and so he he played a important part in just setting the stage for this um, for basically lost continents going. There was like how, how to put this like succinctly, um, like bef- even before Donnelly, like Atlantis as an idea wasn't really um, around that much anymore. He had it pop up um, with Jules Verne. And so that, that helped it with his 20,000 leagues under the sea, but there was no like, you know, exploration of, of Atlantis. And so what, what Donnelly really did was create the framework for studying um, these kind of lost continents, putting the kind of pseudoscientific tinge on on like you know putting their stamp on on a lost continent which 
future generations after after him. So he wrote his book, Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, and it came out in the 1880s. And so kind of after that, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, you would have these figures looking into Lemuria themselves. So mostly like James Churchward um, and his Moo books and others like Lewis Spence. They, they were taking the kind of the playbook that Donnelly set forth in his in his work and using a lot utilizing that and like putting that blueprint onto Lemoria. And so and he did a lot of just pooling from different different areas um, and saying these Irish ruins and these Egyptian ruins, they had share a lot of similarities. Um, and so there must be a connector there through Atlantis and, and that that sort of like diffusionist thinking. Um, he really kind of like perfected that. And so others after him would do sort of similar things, but just instead of the Atlantic Ocean, they would be doing that with like Pacific Islanders and other you know, cultural um, aspects out there in the Pacific Ocean and Indian Oceans. And really that blueprint that he came up with in the 1880s is still used today. Yeah. You mentioned David Icke and his book series. I think it's like Blueprint of the Gods or something like that. That same format is still being used today where you take just the surface level understanding of new scientific concepts and apply it to these really bizarre conspiracy theories. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, very much I see Graham Hancock also and Ignatius Donnelly and, and what he has done with his kind of like and all these people who have this this idea of there being like a Ur civilization. So it's either that's, you know. Atlantis or some sort of ancient alien, you know, civilization that kind of bred humanity. So that goes into the, you know, Von Daniken books and, or the Zachariah Stitchin also. And, and so you have, a, it, it really did set the, the template for, for those people. And we're still, we're still dealing with all that stuff today because Graham Hancock is, is a lot more, is, 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 is around <laughs> everywhere. Thanks probably to, to Joe Rogan. So, and his ideas. And various cable news channel, well, not news channels, but various cable channels uh, yeah. started out teaching history and now it's not so much. <laughs> yeah. And well, he's getting Netflix and, you know, specials and stuff like that. So yeah. yeah. Good on him. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like setting up a, you know, he, he's Donnelly was very good at creating the dots and connecting them. Um, and so when you're doing that, you can control the narrative and create whatever narrative you want. And so, I see a lot of that also in the work of Graham Hancock of him just, you know, creating these, these connecting points for himself in order to, you know, further his own ideas or his own interpretation of, you know, historical artifacts and things like that. Now, you mentioned that you started out looking into Blavatsky and, mm -hmm. and her connection to Lemuria. What sparked that interest? You, you mentioned that you were always interested in the weird stuff, but why Blavatsky specifically? Well, she's kind of, she's something you can't avoid um, when, you, when you're doing this. And so I, I've done a, like my background is in like alternative or right-wing political movements. Um, and so over the last 20 or so years, that has been kind of merging with this new age ideas and concepts as well. And it's very much, she has been very much at the kind of epicenter of new age thinking and, and new age religions. 
And they kind of all just blossom out from her. And so just my own personal, just how I like to do research or just how I, I like to, um, to think is I always like to go back to like the original thing. So like being a fan of like 60s rock music, I like to go back and see their influences and like go back to like Robert Johnston and stuff like that. Um, and so that that's kind of like how I approach Blavatsky too, because she is like the 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 mother of all of this that's going on right now, especially in this alternative um, religious movements going on. Um, and so um, that's kind of that's where it all started, just being interested in these alternative ideas and wanting to know where they came from. And so they all kind of sort of blossom from Madame Blavatsky and her writing and thinking. And I will say that she, like doing the research, like I know she was like one of the most fascinating people like reading her and just getting to know more about her, like and the, the more wrinkles you see, like I, I kind of get the sense from her, like I don't put too much stock into like the physical manifestations that she would have, like the, like the classic spiritualist stuff, like the knocking and the, the sounds, like the, the creation of sounds and, and all of that kind of stuff. But her, she was just an impressive thinker and like her ability to synthesize everything. Cause she was pulling from, not only she was pulling from her own spiritual, like mystical stuff that she was probably creating out of, out of whole cloth herself, but she was, doing it and also putting it, pushing it up against the, like the science of her day too. So she had a, a very strong understanding of all of the scientists that she was talking about in, in her books, um, the secret doctrine. And like that, that just impressed me. Like, and it's, it's one of the um, kind of weird things about when you get researching into Lemuria, just how much like she was citing her works throughout her, her, her whole thing. And so that, that helps me very much. So when I'm doing my research, but it also shows that she kind of respected what she was doing because future theosophist. Okay, so she created um, the Theosophical Society or co-created the Theosophical Society, which is still around today. She would, she would cite her sources, but the, the second wave that would come after her, they, they didn't have, that respect for for the sources that they were dealing with and so you don't you don't get where they're getting their ideas from where with Blavatsky you know exactly where it's coming from even if it is her made up language or made up works you're still knowing that they're coming from those those places yeah and that's something I've pointed out on the show before in in multiple book reviews is that there are times especially with say religious texts or uh, new age books, magic texts, things like that, where people are proposing new ideas and new concepts and things, but they're not citing a source of any any way, shape, or form. It's just like, okay, where did you get this? Where did you hear this new thing about this goddess? Is this personal gnosis that you are adding into the story on your own? Is this is there's there precedent for this? So I was really impressed, and that's your book has an extensive list of sources cited, which is fantastic. Also not surprising because you're also a history major, so we both come from the same background, and I totally understand and appreciate it. Um, and then that's, that's, it gets right to the point, too, because, I mean, she does a, she's, she's saying a lot of weird stuff about Lemuria and her root races and all that kind of, like, 
mythology behind hers. But the people that came after her, they're doing exactly what you were saying. They're just pulling it from everywhere and throwing it out there. And you're like, where, where's this coming from? Uh, is it all just coming from they, And like, I think people I'm talking about are um, Annie Besant and Charles Leadbeater um, and also Rudolf Steiner. Um, and so for someone like Steiner, he's just saying that it comes from like the Akashic records. And so, which is- yeah, the Akashic records, it's kind of a cop out. You're, you're literally just channeling stuff out of your own brain for the most part. <laughs> it really is. But yeah, and I was really fascinated to read more about Annie Besant, and I think I'm going to actually go and research more of her biography just from what I read in your book. She seems like she was really an impressive person yeah. for the time period, especially. And then she just at some point loses the plot entirely mm-hmm. and starts talking about aliens from Mars <laughs> and the moon coming to Earth in wicker baskets and they're giant jelly blob things. Can you go into a little bit more about that? Yeah. So she was, um, and she was working with Charles Leadbeater. And so she was this very, very impressive woman who, um, even before she became involved with theosophy, lived this like fascinating life of being very much a, an activist. Um, she, she fought for women's rights and like women's, birthrights and, and, and stuff like that in England. And then she was given the like an uh, assignment like a from a newspaper to to review the secret doctrine, which is Blavatsky's like great work. And so she does this review and I guess just became an, uh, uh, an adherent to, to Blavatsky and the, theosophy. And then she slowly kind of after Blavatsky's death, she slowly kind of grew in power within the Theosophical Society, leading to her becoming named the, the president of the Theosophical Society. And over that that time period, she had moved to India and became involved in the Indian freedom movement, like the, the you know, anti-colonial movement and, and wanting to get uh, freedom for India, you know, away from the becoming a, um, a British colony. And so she was like involved in all these kind of weird things. But at the same time, she was also like projecting herself into atoms and trying to figure out what a, um, a thought looks like in, in color and, and shapes and sizes and stuff like that. And she was doing these also really weird with Leadbeater of um, kind of like almost like quasi past life regressions where they were just like project themselves back into famous people and just see what happens. And so that's where you get a lot of her writings on Lemuria. And so her and Leadbeater were like projecting themselves back to the time of Lemuria, which was millions of years ago for them. And they were seeing these, you know, like if you thought, like I thought like um, Blavatsky's writing, especially in The Secret Doctrine, is super, super dense. You get like even more denser and more weird and more, incomprehensible in, in Besant and Leadbeater's work because you, I, I, you can't make heads or tails on it. But it's like them, and you, you get this like kind of quasi-ancient alien thing of, you know, people from Mars and people from the moon um, coming down to Earth and kind of like seeding, seeding humanity and the beings that are here on Earth and, and kind of teaching them 
up um, to being spiritual and educational leaders for them. And they're fighting dinosaurs and, and kind of stuff like that. It, it gets really strange and really, really bizarre. The way I described it in the previous episode is basically reading Basant's work is like if you took Blavatsky's secret doctrine and had it translated by Ikea. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and it is just it's so sometimes so incomprehensible, like you said, and it makes no sense, but it's very much glove a goes to basket B with root race C in the third seventh. It is, it's weird. It's very strange. And it's all in Swedish too. Like that would be what you're saying. Um, the Ikea <laughs> thing, but, but it's like only reading the Swedish version of it too. And then it's just like, okay, well, there's, there is something bizarre going on here that I am not picking up on. And it seems like everyone's, Still, to this day, no one understands why Basant stood beside Leadbeater for so long. Yeah, that's 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 what I, I don't know why she couldn't quit him. Like there was no there was there was something weird going. On. I guess so. Um, if people aren't in the know about Charles Leadbeater, he was a he was he was kind of like similar to the Basant. He became a kind of a late. Um, convert to, to theosophy at the same time in the late 19th century. Um, and as he was ingratiating himself into the Theosophical Society, he was working as a, well, like a tutor, like a private tutor for like boys. And then there was just uh, allegation after allegation, like credible allegations uh, against him for sexual abuse of, of these of these boys. And it would just happen over decades and decades too. It wasn't just like a one-time deal. It was, um, it kept on happening where he got kicked out of the Theosophical Society. And then Besant gets elected as the president and kind of brings him back into the fold. And then he gets kicked out again because of all of the stuff that keeps happening with him. And so it's just really, really weird that, that she would stand beside him for so long. And, and keep on doing it. And like they had a whole whole like side gig with um, Jidhu Krishna Murti. It was like their Christ-like figure that they were trying to bring along um, in the Theosophical Society. He was a, he, another like um, Indian boy that they, they just happened across. And so they thought he would be the savior or the, the one, the basically the one to kind of usher in humanity's, you know, next age. And so they were grooming him to be a, um, to be this person. But luckily he, he kind of quit the Theosophical Society and, and had a um, fairly, um, and, you know, he was his own spiritual leader afterwards and, and uh, uh, thankfully a well-adjusted human being after being, I guess, mistreated by Leadbeater and, and Bassan. So of all of these stories, which one is your favorite? Oh, Frederick Spencer Oliver and... Is, is by far my favorite and his his whole life story always is just fascinating to me and it's just the outsized influence that his his book that he channeled the a dweller on two planets kind of has played and it still is playing um having an impact on on us today and so frederick spencer oliver was a very early example of a channeler so when he was a teenager he was born outside of Washington, D.C. in 1866. His family moved to the West Coast um, when he was really young. And so they kind of moved up and around all over the West Coast from California to 
around Portland or Oregon over to Nevada. And then they finally settled in Santa Barbara outside, or at least outside of Santa Barbara in California. Um, it was during these travels when he was a teenager, he was, um, the story goes, I should say, he was um, surveying a piece of property for his dad up by Mount Shasta in Northern California. And he was writing down some notes and then this being started talking through him or taking over his writing. So it's almost like an automatic writing situation. Um, he gets freaked out, he goes home. And then over the next months, uh, course of weeks and months, this, this being starts like getting to know him. They get like a meet cute. And so, um, and this being is called Philos. He's a um, Tibetan mystic basically, who um, comes to him and starts talking to him he starts channeling him and Philo says, you need to write this book. I, I, I need to have this book written. And so he writes down this book called A Dweller on Two Planets. And then he spends the rest of his life trying to get it published and it never gets published in his life. And but at, at also while trying to get it published, he's he has this kind of like almost wannabe cult growing up around him that only has like a handful of followers at any one given time but but when he does get a follower they seem to be very much they're 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 gung-ho for him too because he he got an ex prosecuting attorney i believe uh or or prosecutor from the the county i forget the name of the county of the, uh, where ballard california is from but yeah he he becomes an adherent to him and basically also becomes his literary agent so he's out and about going all over Los Angeles trying to get his book published to, to no avail. And there's also this very, very bizarre um, story about Frederick Spencer Oliver. He was a newspaper man. He that's what it was his day job to kind of pay the bills. And he he finds this story of a ex-sex worker who um, kills her husband in the Los Angeles City um, City Hall. And he becomes like obsessed with her because he sees it as a fulfilling of his prophecies that he wrote down in A Dweller on Two Planets. And so he tries to ingratiate himself in the, the woman's murder trial. And he tries to get his like, you know, buddy, uh, his ex-attorney slash literary agent on the legal, his, her defense team. He tries, he sends his mom down there to try to to try to adopt her, this 20 some year old woman, <laughs> he's trying to get his mom to adopt. And so it is, just becomes, and then he ends up dying young um, in his early thirties in 1899. But his mom kept working and working and working and finally got A Dweller on Two Planets published in 1904. But then it wasn't until the 1920s where like a second edition was released and she she teamed up with a, like a newspaper columnist, a, a popular newspaper columnist out in California and got to get a second edition. And that's the edition that kind of like exploded and, and got this idea out there that there's weird stuff going on out in Mount Shasta. And he's one of those interesting figures who's literally just one generation too soon for what he was trying to say. Yeah, definitely. And if he wouldn't have passed away in his 30s, I think he would have gone on with the second edition and been pretty famous. Yeah. 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 He could have been like a, a, I could see him being a early like cult leader or something, or something along those lines or what um, people who, who 
used his works would become. And so you would have someone like Harvey Spencer Lewis, who was the founder of Amherst, which is the ancient mystical order of the Rosicrucians. So the Rosicrucians in, in California are someone like Guy Ballard, who basically just stole Frederick Spencer Oliver's whole backstory when he created um, the I Am Activity Movement. Or so, even someone like the, the contactee guy, the, uh, George Adamski, or something along, along those lines, even even like going a, a generation after after those people. And so you can definitely see him. If he would have just stayed alive, he would have been more, uh, more, a lot more influential, or at least seen the fruits of his, his influence. The whole story with the Rosicrucian order, Amork, that in itself is bizarre. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and they just like they, they just kind of made it all up. What I find very, very much so, Harvey Spencer Lewis created Amherst, but he was writing under the a pseudonym Wishar Spinlay Survey, and that's where we get the book um, Lemuria: The Lost Continent of the Pacific, which was a very popular esoteric book in that in that time period. It came out in the early 1930s. And it kind of like exploded out because it had this idea it had this idea of putting Lemurians in and around Mount Shasta. And it kind of created this this mythos around Mount Shasta as well. And and the funniest thing about it for me is um so it it, it kind of explodes Mount Shasta. And so people start showing up at Mount Shasta looking for Lemurians or looking for Philos or looking for everybody. And, and not finding them, too. <laughs> and so it becomes so popular that the Forest Service, which was managing Mount Shasta at the time, they had to release press statements or press releases saying, you know, we have been all over this mountain. We haven't seen anything. We photographed it from, you know, we've flown over it and taken photographs of every every inch of this mountain. We have never seen any buildings that are associated that you're thinking are there. We haven't seen any weird people that are there as well, or like weird dances or, or anything like that. And so people were started complaining to Amherst that they weren't having these experiences with themselves. And so they had to almost, they had to release an article like five or six years down the road and, and say, because you guys were going to Mount Shasta and, and, you know, harassing these Lemurians, these peaceful Lemurians, they had to pick up and, and head down to Mexico um, because of y'all. You, you, you done ruined a good thing. So shame on you. And it seems like that in itself, not the moving to Mexico part, but the Forest Service response. I can only imagine that people's response to that is what we see today with a lot of conspiracy theory, where it's like, well, of course you're going to say that because you don't want us to go there and find them. Yeah, yeah. So nothing's really changed. It's just different names and different locations. Yeah, right. And it's like, yeah, pouring these, putting these poor um, um, forest service agents or whatever in, in, the, in, the, in the crosshairs of early conspiracy theorists. So there was a story in the book that I wanted to ask you about if this is something that actually happened. Did you really go to Vegas to a metaphysical show looking for Lemurian crystals? Yes, I did. Well, it wasn't in Vegas. It was here in Charlestown. So um, there's a racetrack here in Charlestown that they were uh, a metaphysical conference at. So, so yeah, I was there looking for a um, Lemurian crystals. 
So like a, a true Lemurian seed crystal, unfortunately. Could you explain what that is to the listeners? Yeah. So um, one of the big things that are um, where Lemurian shows up today is in these kind of ideas of seed crystals. And so um, if you can look it up online, um, a Lemurian seed crystal is basically a, a phalanx of uh, quartz crystal, like clear quartz crystal um, that has special powers like hidden within it. You have to activate the powers and everything like that. And so it comes from the idea that ancient Lemurians were a kind of like a space brothers type of situation. They were aliens um, and they were coming here to earth to, and seeded earth with these crystals to kind of help them fuel their intergalactic travel. So they, they put them here, they let them grow and then they'll come back and harvest them and there'll be fuel for their, you know, um, spaceships going forward. But we've, we're lucky enough to uncover them and, we too can unlock their intergalactic powers. And so that's, that's where this idea of Lemurian seed crystals come from. And so they're routinely, I guess, mined in mostly Brazil nowadays, even though Brazil has no connection to the Lemurian, <laughs> Lemurian any Lemurian story uh, that I've run across, but that's where most of the, the seed crystals come from. And so they're really beautiful, like large, um, quartz crystal like shafts that you can find so they've got the weird horizontal striations within correct yeah like inside of it yeah yeah so um i do have a a, a beat on a place like an hour or two away from me that that supposedly has a couple so i'm, I'm looking forward to the finding and, and owning my very own Lemurian seed crystal one day. we have a lot of gem mineral and fossil shows here in town so i'll keep an eye out see if i see one yeah, yeah. And that, that, like you can go to those and go to a metaphysical store or go to a, a, a like a head shop or anything like that. And they will have crystals there and they will have these, you know, quartz crystals. And, and they, for all intents and purposes, are Lemurian sea crystals, but they're just not named it. Like I just want that <laughs> to have that, that name associated with it. Yeah, fair enough. What was the most surprising thing that you found in your research? Surprising? I guess how much respect that I ended up having for Blavatsky and um, just like as a thinker, just because I think most of her, I I think most of what she says is kind of BS, but researching her and and what came after her and what she kind of influenced really came to believe um, honestly that she is one of the most influential people of the 19th century, just because of we're still dealing with the impact of everything that she, she put out there in the world. And so like, like there was a recent documentary on the love has one cult that came out on max, I think in December of this year or of last year. And so like, you don't have that cult arising if without, you know, someone like Blavatsky laying the foundation before that. Um, and so you can see the direct, you know, connections going on there and there's, you know, you know, dozens and dozens of these kind of self-help new age groups around today that are kind of directly or indirectly or, you know, cousins related to, you know, Blavatsky and the Theosophical Society and everything that that came up around her. And then just like, just general ideas that she she put out there with like the root races and and thinking about 
making Lemuria weird and then making Atlantis weird <laughs> as well and, and all of that stuff. So it almost seems like the really weird stuff that she was using or talking about in her work was a delivery system for deeper thought. But then she also has mm -hmm. some very strange beliefs of her own. And you get that weird nebulous back and forth. At least I did questioning. Does she really believe this? Is this a metaphor? Is she speaking literally? And I think that that nebulous area is what really makes this magical. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really does. It really kind of, I, I don't want to compare her to, to him in any kind of religious way, but like very, very Jesus-y and mess messianic and that um, she has this, she created her own own myth around herself. Like, like Jesus, there was this 20 or 30 year period where, you know, he was out in the wilderness. We don't really know what he was doing before he became, he came back and the son of God and all that. Um, and so she was doing the same kind of mythologizing around herself and 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 also really playing up the 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 miracles that she would perform and so those are like the, like the classic kind of like 19th century spiritualist stuff but also the the theology around what she was talking about as well and so like she, she understood it like i i it's for me it's um don't hate the player hate the game um and so um, she was just really good at playing the game and like probably the best at playing, playing this kind of like spiritualist um, alternative thinking game. Like good on her for that. And then on top of that, she was one of the first notable Westerners to convert to Buddhism. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And like, and like, I know there was a lot of what came after her, but she kind of greased the wheels for bringing in these um, Eastern ideas and Eastern thinking and Eastern religions to Western Western people. And so, yeah, her, along with her co-founder of Theosophy, Henry Steele Alcott, um, really helped you know, bring not only Buddhism, but Hinduism to more like America and England and, and just getting, you know, Westerners to think about these concepts and these ideas. Yeah, she gets a lot of flack in the New Age community in like the deep thinking portion of the New Age community for really being for for being some of the first people to do cultural appropriation. But at the time, she was communicating these thoughts and ideas to an entirely new market, to an entirely new culture who had not had any contact with the East prior to this. Did she exploit that to make a lot of profit? Absolutely. Did she use this to make her own weird philosophical and religious beliefs? Yeah. But she's also that bridge. She she was she had a very important part to play in the introduction of these beliefs, whether it was done morally or not. Yeah, yeah. And I would say and more so her her buddy Alcott. Like he seemed to be a true believer and a true, um, truly invested in helping out the the people of these places, particularly Sri Lanka, where he is still like kind of held as this like spiritual figure there because he helped um, kind of bring back not I don't want to say help bring back but um, um, help establish um, Buddhist 
schools there and help help just help elevate Buddhism back into um, Sri Lankan society. Well, before we get out of here, was there anything else you wanted to talk about in regards to your book or really whatever you're working on outside of this? <laughs> well, um, I'm finishing up a book right now on colonial Philadelphia, so it's completely on the opposite opposite spectrum of Lemuria. So I hope to uh, you know get back into doing some more weird stuff here um, soon after that's written. Just to, just because I, I like it, I like finding all of the the stories and and everything else associated with them, um, and finding the connection points and and see and tracing you know how an idea goes for something so weird or something so not not weird but something so scientific and how it kind of transforms into this you know bizarre weird weird thing where it, it basically tracing the uh how a alternative narrative gets formed over you know generation yeah i think you use the allegory in here of it's a giant game of telephone starting in the 1850s yeah. to the modern day and it just slowly changes each time it's retold over and over and over again and not usually for the better. <laughs> just, just for the weirder, I think. Or it's for people's ideas. It's, it's for people to, um, and Lemoria is very much has become a um, blank slate for someone to just imprint upon whatever ideas they they want to put on. That makes sense. Well, where can people find you? Uh, well, they can find me on. Um, let's see here. I have a newsletter that I write. It's called Our Belated Past, O-U-R, Belated Past. Um, and then I'm on, I guess, Instagram and threads as Justin Loves History. So you can find me there. Spreading historical love around. All right. Well, thanks for checking in. And until next time, remember, stay weird. Stay weird.